Good morning. I learned, you know, a great many things in grad school, most of which I think I've probably already forgotten. But as I was preparing for our time together today, I was reading the scriptures, I thought of something that I learned that could be relevant, maybe a little impressive to us all. Here's what I remembered. It's this. It's Exodus chapter 16, verse 2, beginning of our text today. Exodus 16, verse 2, comes directly after Exodus 16, verse 1. It's good, right? I won't tell you how many thousands of dollars I spent to learn that. The point is this, is that sometimes we open the scriptures and we read the text that the lectionary invites us into, and we don't always take time to situate ourselves in the larger story. Exodus chapter 16, verse 2 doesn't come from nowhere. It's not even the beginning of the story. It comes after verse 1, which is after chapter 15, right? The context actually really matters. And if you've been around the church for a while, I'm sure you heard the text today and you realize that we're talking about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness headed towards the promised land. And maybe it it called to mind right away all of the stories that come before that. But if you're a little newer or you need a little refresher, I thought we could just take a moment and situate ourselves in, in what's happening in the scriptures. The book of Exodus comes directly after Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. It's Joseph, the next generation, I guess you could say. And the problem is that this next generation brings a pharaoh who is not great, primarily interested in consolidating power. He oppresses and enslaves the Israelites. It's throwing me off. Is the mic okay? It feels like it's loud. Is that just in my head? We're good? Great, team. We're great. All right, so we have a Pharaoh who has oppressed and enslaved the Israelites, and it's not great. So Exodus chapter 2, we get introduced to Moses, who's born really at a pretty terrible time. He floats down the river in the basket. Do you remember that story? Gets adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He's living the high life until he encounters a bush that's on fire, but it doesn't ever burn up. And so Moses has a miraculous encounter with the great I Am. Now Moses is barefoot, but the stories are starting to get good. We head into Exodus chapter 6, and God says that he will redeem the people from the yoke of slavery. It's beautiful language. God will free them. God will redeem them. God will remember the covenant. God will bring them out. God will take them as God's own people. But the Israelites are discouraged. They're enslaved. And so the stories get a little bit bigger. The plagues happen, blood and gnats and frogs and hail. We have the very first Passover. All of Pharaoh's army is washed away as God parts the Red Sea for God's people to come through. Exodus chapter 15, the people have started to wander in the wilderness. It turns out they don't love the desert. And so God provides for them an oasis. There's 70 palm trees, 12 springs of water. It's beautiful. And so we get to what I think perhaps is a bit of a heartbreaking text. Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. It's the text just before our text this morning, right? It's the verse that the cynical part of me says, maybe the lectionary left out on purpose. 
Exodus 16, verse 1 says this. The whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elam. And Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month since they had departed from the land of Egypt. This is the 15th day of the second month since they have departed Egypt. It's been six weeks. Do you remember how long they wander in the wilderness? 40 years! They're going to be out there for 40 years, and it's only been six weeks. They have 39 years and 10 months and two weeks to go, and they have no idea. And, and let's be honest about this. It's six weeks, and it's a hard six weeks, right? The walking is hard. The ground is hard. The water is gross. The beds are rocky. There's not a lot of food. They don't know where they're going, and all that is in front of them is unknown. God's people, it seems, are in liminal space. They're not where they were. They're not where they're going. And liminal space is hard. Have you ever been six weeks into liminal space? Or six months? Or six minutes? Or six anything where you weren't where you were and you're not where you're going? Maybe you're not even sure where you are? It's hard. It's hard to have graduated high school and not yet started college. It's hard to wait for a new job or a new relationship, the moments between when a doctor orders the test and the results actually come in, that's liminal space and it's hard. So God's people are in liminal space and they have bad attitudes about it, right? They're like little children. No, they say, no, no, no. We don't want to be here. We don't want to do this. We're hungry and we're tired and probably somewhere inside of them they know that freedom is better than slavery. But today they would just like what's known. So the text tells us they complain. They complain against Moses and they complain against Aaron and then they get really brave and they just complain against God. And if, if I didn't already know this story, if we had this whole order of worship a little bit different and Graham hadn't just read all of this for us, here's what I would imagine this text to go. I would imagine it would be like this. Verse 2, the people complain against Moses and Aaron. Verse 3, they say, would have been better if we had died in Egypt. At least in Egypt, there was a chicken in every pot, all the bread that we could eat, Promised land, Shamama's land, you should have left us there to die. And if I didn't know the text, if we didn't know the nature of the characters in this story, here's what I would have expected verse 4 to read. I would expect verse 4 to read, and God responded, Are you kidding me? You ungrateful little punks, why I oughta. Right? Isn't that what you would think would come after that? After we have rehearsed these stories of God's goodness to God's people, they're still complaining. That's how I would have responded. It's astonishing that that's not how the story goes. But here's what we read in verse 4. God responds and says, I have heard your complaint, and I will rain bread from heaven. Verse 12. At twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will have your fill of bread. And this, 
This abundance, this goodness, this is how you will know that I am the Lord your God. How will the people know who the Lord their God is? It's goodness. Abundant goodness, extravagant goodness. At night, after the cares and the concerns of the day have worn away at their hope, God sends quail. Their kids won't go to bed with empty stomachs. And in the morning, after the darkness have night has eaten away at their hope, minutes and hours have turned to late night questions and wonderings, where are we going? What are we doing? What have we done? Who are we following? In the morning, God sends their fill of bread, all they could want. God, it seems, does not tire of being good to God's people. After all of these stories, after 15 chapters of the Exodus, after God bringing God's people out of slavery, providing for them an oasis in the desert, as the people still complain, God remains good, abundantly good, extravagantly good. It seems to me there could have been a multitude of ways that God could have proven God's self to the people. Power and might, earthquakes, some more plagues, a different bush that catches on fire but doesn't burn up. All sorts of things that God could have done to prove that God is the Lord, their God, and God chooses goodness. At night you will eat quail, and in the morning you will have your fill of bread. This is how you will know that I am the Lord your God. With the 2020 vision that 2,000 years of hindsight gives us, we see that this story is bigger than just the Israelites. It's a, it's a story that's about them, but it's also so much bigger than them. It's six weeks of wandering in the promised land, six weeks into a story that is so consequential, we're still talking about it today. It's about an understanding of who God is, how God responds to God's people, and it echoes its way all the way through the scriptures. At twilight you will eat meat, in the morning you will have your fill of bread, and then you will know that I am the Lord your God. We hear it in the writings of the author of Lamentations, probably in his own deep liminal space. The text says, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope because of the Lord's great love. We are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new each morning. So I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. I will wait for him. In Nehemiah, we find the elders rehearsing who God is and how God has been towards God's people throughout the generations. And they say, in their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. In their thirst, water from a rock. As we, as we pray the Psalms together, each day we find this picture of who God is. Psalm 78 says, God rained down manna from heaven for the people to eat. Human beings ate the bread of angels. God sent them all the food they could eat. Psalm 105, they asked and he brought them quail. He fed them well with the bread of heaven. The story is a touch point throughout all of the scriptures. It's a, a reminder in Ebenezer of who God is, how God responds to God's people. At night, you will eat quail. 
and in the morning you will have your fill of bread. This is how you will know that I am the Lord your God. It's the story that an incredulous crowd kind of remembers as they listen to a prophet from Nazareth who feeds a lot of people with one little kid's lunchbox. You remember this story? Jesus is up on the hillside and there's a big crowd around him and he's been preaching. It's getting to be about lunchtime. And so Jesus looks around and says to the disciples, what do you think we should do? You know the disciples, not quite the quickest bunch. Gosh, Jesus, I don't know. It'd take a lot of money to feed all these people. So Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fishes, and he feeds all the people. They have their fill of bread. And the next morning, the crowd, it seems, are still kind of thinking about what happened, and so they find Jesus again. They say, can we circle back a little bit? Let's, let's talk a little more about what just happened there. As they talk, the conversation turns to manna. How could it not? The crowd says, you know, God provided for our ancestors in the wilderness. They ate manna. Jesus says, I know. The bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the whole world. The crowd's not super quick on the uptake. They don't really get it until Jesus says, it's me. I am the bread of life. Jesus is the divine abundance. Whoever comes to me will never hunger again. You shall have your fill of bread. All you could want, all you might need, 12 baskets full of leftovers. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. We remember God's abundant goodness as we read the story of the Israelites sustained for 40 years on miraculous bread. We remember God's abundant goodness each time we share communion together when we offer one another the bread of life. We embody God's abundant goodness when we offer one another a piece of bread instead of a stone. At night you shall eat quail, and in the morning you will have your fill of bread. This is how you will know that I am the Lord, your God. Amen.